0: to another episode of the peace production a podcast from the organization for world peace where we look at the biggest issues currently threatening human security this episode we're discussing the novel coronavirus outbreak and its broader political complexities joining me is our former podcast presenter and long-standing correspondent matthew adamson so matt what is the novel coronavirus and how is the crisis unfolded over the past week or so
1: yeah, sure. So the coronavirus is a um, is a family of viruses. that's actually quite common. Um, but this novel mutation that we're seeing is one that um, has never really been seen before. It presents itself as sort of like a flu-like respiratory virus. It can lead to pneumonia and death in many cases, as we're seeing. Um, an interesting point that we uncovered from research was that it shares a lot in common with the SARS virus, which was... Um, quite deadly back in 2003 and that also came from Asia where SARS also being a form of coronavirus. But this novel version, which, we, which we're seeing now, that started in mid-December in the Hubei province of China, primarily in Wuhan. But it's really started escalating in the past few weeks in January as the transmission rate has really started growing and the virus multiplying. And we've seen, we've seen the quarantine of Wuhan, which is a city of 11 million people, along with several other cities in the province, and we've starting to see a lot of measures taken elsewhere. Now, the virus originated in the Chinese wet market, which over there is a market which sells meat and live animals, um, including chicken, dogs and pigs. But the um, prevailing theory is that this new, new novel coronavirus originated from bat meat. Now, why is that significant? Well, bat meat stew is a traditional dish in this area of China is actually quite a delicacy. So culturally it's of some significance. So it's not out of the ordinary for bats to be consumed in China, despite that they they carry a large amount of pathogens and bacteria. Okay,
0: great. So what is the current status then of the severity of this outbreak? How many are infected and how many dead? And how, how bad is it generally, would you say?
1: So at the time of recording, there's over 10,000 people have now been infected with the novel coronavirus, and the death toll's at 260. This is primarily concentrated in China, but we're now starting to see cases in as much as 20 countries around the world. Um, The severity of the symptoms, they vary quite significantly depending on the person's age or pre-existing conditions. Um, For example, most of the infected individuals, they really only show symptoms which are akin to a common cold for the most part during the the period where they are presenting symptoms and then the disease really takes off from there. Um, And why it's dangerous is that it really has, it's got quite a long incubation period where no symptoms are seen and this sort of allows it to be in there undetected and still be passed on to other people which is quite dangerous and why the quarantine has been deemed necessary.
0: Okay, and are there any dead outside of China, or is it just uh, located within China at the moment?
1: So far, all the deaths have been in China. They've just been confirmed infected persons in other countries. Okay. And
0: obviously, one of the major organisations which is involved with this crisis is the World Health Organisation. So what is... You know, what uh, influence have the World Health Organization had thus far? And um, you know, how might they be able to affect this crisis?
1: So the World Health Organization as really the, the body that works with the UN on health issues and works in different countries where these, I guess, pandemics pop up, has really an important role to play in terms of what they describe an illness to be really determines what sort of level of support goes into these countries. So they were quite hesitant originally to declare an international health emergency um, in the case of this virus, because they met uh, earlier last week and were playing a bit of wait and see, but they since met again on Friday after the death toll reached about 117, decided to designate this an international health emergency, which is really quite significant because it leads to much more funding for the fight against the virus. Um, But the implications of them declaring this are quite huge for China because it can really be quite harmful to the economy because of the travel restrictions and uh, the thousands of people who are going to cancel their travel plans as a result of this. So it's something they use very carefully. It's only really been used four times before. Uh, Once with SARS once with Zika and twice with Ebola. So that's how this, this level of significance that we, that this virus has really reached in terms of the WHO response.
0: And how have China responded to this crisis in terms of their uh,
1: governmental
0: and public health response?
1: So for China, the response has been really quite, um, it's been really quite quick in terms of once the problem reached the central government level, the the response was really quite rapid and the way in which they responded was something that
0: most Western countries
1: probably couldn't do. And the way, their response has really been influenced by the way that they handled the SARS outbreak back in 2003 because they were really slow then to declare an emergency. They waited until the the cases had built up to quite a catastrophic level. And they really lost a lot of credibility on the world stage for not not being able to handle that properly and failing to really see what was going on till it was too late. So this time around, they've been a lot quicker in terms of how they respond to this and placing the quarantine on Wuhan. Uh, one quite striking example of how they've responded has been this 1,000-bed ho- hospital being built in the space of six, six days. And I don't know, don't know how many Western countries could do that, but... I don't imagine you could cut the number in one hand. Uh, They've really cracked down on the trade of wild animals as well, which has been one quite interesting feature, obviously to stop the spread of disease carrying animals. Um, In Hong Kong, you are also seeing quite a lot of restrictions where the memory of SARS is the freshest. Uh, They've restricted the number of buses between the mainland and have closed the bridge that goes into Macau. Um, So really what you see with China is they've been prompted to act because they have a fear of a loss of reputation internally and externally, in my opinion. At the domestic level, if the government and system is seen to be failing, that's really quite damaging because they derive their legitimacy on such a tight grip of power. And when they're not seen to being efficient and in control, then people lose faith in the system, which is really damaging for China. Um, So there's complete travel bans in Wuhan, and it's really left many Western countries deciding what they're going to do with their people in the province. I know the New Zealand government has chartered a flight to evacuate about 150 people who have registered themselves in the Hubei province, so that will be happening next week, and they'll probably be quarantined somewhere up the top of North Island, I've I've heard. But this really raises questions about the efficiency of the Chinese state to respond to national crises like this. It seems remarkably efficient, but by the same token, quarantine is nearly impossible in the 21st century, given how mobile people are. You know, it's near impossible for them to contain something like this, even when when they're at still early stages. Um, There are clear improvements since 2003, but really, the way in which the um, the way in which people view science is in a way which is very subordinate to politics, which causes the situation where local leaders become paralysed until they receive central government direction, which really leaves these these viruses an opportunity to grow to a point where they're very quite hard to stop. Um, so, the substantively what we see the response time is bushed out quite a bit. Um, The media is muzzled in the early stages of a a case like this and the public is really kept in the dark. So you see there's a lot of valuable time being lost by by the fact that local government in China is not empowered to respond to incidents like these. Um, Alex, in terms of President or Premier Xi Jinping, what potential impact do you think this would have on his regime should this continue to escalate?
0: So I think this crisis has actually
1: come to a point
0: when Xi Jinping, in a sort of aberration, I suppose, in recent history, has actually come under some pressure in terms of his grip and power in China. And obviously that's because of uh, certain recent events, like, for example, the Hong Kong protests, and the recent election in Taiwan, uh, you know, where a leader was elected who is is opposed to uh, the the Chinese influence in in Taiwan. So uh, I think there have been some some sort of uh, tentative, uh, but not insignificant threats to Xi Jinping's rule there. And I think the way in which he's responded to this probably reflects his desire to do something about that and to try, if he can, to attenuate those threats by giving off, as he said, you said, know, giving off very much an impression that, that he is in control, that he's an efficient and effective leader, and that he's able to mobilize the, you know, the sheer power and resources of the Chinese state to respond to a crisis in a way that um, one can imagine that Western countries might struggle more with. And I guess that, that is something of a testament to this authoritarian, capitalistic uh, model of government that China have. Again, something which is rather unique to them, whereby they have you know, centralised centralized, centralized resources and a huge centralised bureaucracy. Through which is essentially controlled by by one party, and with you know Xi Jinping at the at the, the head of that, and they can mobilise a substantial amount of resources very quickly. And so, in these sorts of situations, uh, one can imagine that they can be rather effective, especially you know in 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 containing. Uh, a, a, you know, a virus which will potentially potentially have global implications. Um, obviously, that's made more difficult by the fact that China is absolutely enormous and, uh, you know, containing it within within one province has already proved to be completely impossible. So I think that, uh, you know, obviously Xi Jinping has dealt with this far better than SARS outbreak was dealt with back in 2003, But it remains to be seen how effectively he will deal with it. Um, Obviously, again, with the proviso that we, I guess the corollary of of Xi Jinping's huge grip on power in China is that he also has the power to conceal things. And I suppose we, you know, if we take on face value what the Chinese media is telling us, uh, which is really the only source of information we have. Uh, coming out of China, then uh, ostensibly he's dealt with this rather well, but there may be distortions to those figures. There may be a misinformation. We don't really know at this point. So, in terms of the scale of the crisis, that might have been uh, underplayed or you know underrepresented. So that's that you know that, that's a possibility that arises out just just the nature of the Chinese state and it is an inevitability, I suppose, and obviously if, if indeed it has been concealed or the, the numbers have been altered uh, or not properly represented, then, then potentially we might be dealing with a much more significant problem. So I suppose uh, w- one of the things that is, has, has occurred to me, just from watching this media circus, if you will unfold in the recent, you know, in recent weeks, is really the question of how how serious this crisis actually is, and whether there's the potential that you know the nature of of, of media uh, has sort of exaggerated or led to a sort of panic or hysteria that perhaps is disproportionate to the level of the threat which is actually you know we're actually presented with. So, what do you what do you think of that?
1: Yeah. So, from a clinical perspective, I think that the you know we see these types of things all the time in terms of outbreaks of viral pandemics. But you only have to think about how many people die each year from seasonal flu. Seasonal flu is a death rate of about 0.01 percent, so one death in every 10,000 cases. For the seasonal flu, which is something that goes really unreported, but in the US alone, you, you saw 500,000 deaths from the flu last year, and there's no reporting on that. The mortality rate of this novel coronavirus is at about 2%, which is, yeah, that's significantly higher than the flu, but if you compare it to, say, SARS, which was 10%, or MERS, which was 34%, then it's really not that. Deadly by comparison, um, where it does have the potential to be quite dangerous is in the transmission rate, which is quite high. Uh, but even then, it's not as high as something as like some, as high as something as measles. So the the real threat posed by coronavirus is is actually being viewed by many Western uh, medical professionals as quite low by comparison to previous instances. Um, The guidance that New Zealand medical practitioners get is to treat this like the flu. Um, It's really just a different variation in terms of symptoms and it's slightly more deadly. Um, But, I mean, in Australia, they've already been able to reproduce the strain of novel coronavirus in a laboratory environment. So they're hopeful that they'll be able to have a vaccine ready really quite soon. Um, So while this will probably spread quite a lot more, there is a fair chance that through quarantine and through protective measures that this sort of thing will be able to burn out on its own. Sort of like in the way that SARS did in 2003 where it sort of stopped in its tracks at about 700 dead. And while it's 700 too many, it's not, think yet there's going to be on the scale of, say, a 1918 Spanish flu or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's really quite interesting watching the, this all play out in, in public because I've seen down where I live, down at the tip of the bottom of the South Island, pharmacies are selling out of face masks. And even this far away from where this is all happening, you see a lot of fear and and a lot of people really going over the top to protect themselves against something that hasn't even arrived in the country yet. So I guess there's really, there's almost this obsession with pandemics there at the moment that everyone's worried about, people are gonna die from a pandemic. But really, there's far more to the things out there, such as climate change, which if we were to respond to that, the same of urgency we've responded to this novel coronavirus, there might be a much better outcome for the planet's climate.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you know this is uh, this crisis if anything is is very reflective or you know illustrative of how how powerful the media can be in accentuating for people uh, the importance of certain issues and the significance of certain issues and you know, potentially allowing an atmosphere of fear to take hold. And obviously, you know, fear is, is very attractive. It's very sellable. And, and I think the media have, have done what is natural for them to do and, and to take advantage of that. And, uh, yeah, you can really, as you say, you can really see the consequences of that sort of event uh, just, just, just from, you know, looking around, uh, you know, in, in you know, my country in Australia, Again, there's there's, uh, face masks everywhere Um, and I guess there's there's also, you know, they are perhaps the more innocuous effects of this, of of the media's uh, potential exaggeration of this crisis, but there's also some more uh, ominous effects which we're starting to see as well Uh, and in terms of, uh, particularly the racial dynamics of this, so there's been not just a stoking up of fear of the virus itself, but the association of this virus with obviously China, and um, you know the, the racial prejudices which are involved in that, uh, in, in, in you know these associations that, that this is a Chinese virus when in fact you know the, the, the virus obviously has no nationality, even though it may have originated in, in China. So yeah, I think those are. You know, those are some things we certainly need to watch out for and, and sort of check ourselves on um, I guess that leads me to another question which is how have the, how has the world you know, more broadly or countries around the world responded to this crisis uh, as well as China
1: so what's really struck me in terms of how the rest of the world has responded to this has been the amount of Really, covert racism in the way that this has been responded to, in terms of, as you said, this, this being some sort of Chinese problem. or well, really, it's not. Um, but commonly, we've seen we're seeing trade embargoes and travel bans all over the place. You know, people are advised to avoid travelling to China at the moment. Um, in Australia, we've seen we've seen four cases in New South Wales. There's a um, an argument where children who have returned from China should they be allowed to return to school. Um, and some parents in the community are calling for the government to bar their students from going back to school. So there's a sort of moral panic um, and a prejudice against these people who, and there's really no sort of evidence that they have done anything wrong or have become infected with this virus, there's a bit of a moral panic that we're almost seeing here. and That sort of is not unique to Australia too. We're sort of seeing it in all Western countries really. And there's been a reduction of flights from a number of major airlines into China and that's likely to have quite a negative impact on the economy. Uh, The US Center for Disease Control was issued its highest level warning. So we've seen quarantine facilities being made at airports such as Miami. so it's been real, real negative the way that the international community has really responded to this thus far. And I haven't really seen too much in the way of assistance or help coming China's way just yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I mean, I suppose the other, the other major thing I'd highlight is the effect on global markets, which has been quite severe as well. Um, you know, just in, in their response to this crisis, I think they've—it probably seems to have reversed the, the positive effect that the recent trade deal between the U.S. and China had, and you know, the the potentially sort of reinvigorated or or resurfaced those fears that have been circulating about the prospect of another global recession due to this this. You know uh, the, this growing distance between the U.S. and China, and the trade war that that has been that has been going on uh, there. So yeah, I think this is potentially concerning in that regard too. So what do you think is needed in the future, Matt, to you know try and uh, deal with this crisis in an effective way? Uh, in the future, more broadly,
1: there needs to be greater global cooperation around not only responding to these medical emergencies and and pandemics as you would, but building some sort of resilience to events like this, Um, being transparent and sharing information to come together and build stockpiles of medicines and create vaccines because, you know, there's political choices that you can make during a chaos, during this, this sort of crisis. And the way that you act now, it really has implications for the way you're going to act in the future because you need to, if you are in, let's say you are in a perfectly normal situation, you need to be thinking about health as a determinant of national security. So that being able to protect your citizens within your and being able to have some sort of contingency plan in place and really um, really being able to be resilient and respond to these um, pandemics in the future is something that's going to be quite the measure of national security in these countries and it's really something we don't really think about as an indicator of security but it's something that's really important to the people living there, not so much the nation state as a as a body itself, but um, health is so important in terms of the outcomes of people in these. And to have health be a political choice, um, while it's unfortunate, it is something that is true. Disease outbreaks really represent a chance for governments to be able to demonstrate competence and gain legitimacy, um, and bold choices in these situations can save lives and they must they must be taken quickly, during both outbreak and non-outbreak periods. And what we've really seen as a bit of a problem with the Chinese system is that bold political action is not possible at the local level, it needs to happen at the central level. And that takes time, and it takes, and it's that time that allows the, the situation, the coronavirus, to really take off and become to a point where it's a little bit unmanageable, at least initially. Um, Instead of being pretending to be omnipotent in the way in which these situations are handled, bearing in mind that choices can indicate competence and legitimacy, politicians in, situa- in systems like China's really need to be aware of the limitations of politics. You know, the Chinese government has a real opportunity now to transform its advantages in crisis management into crisis prevention. Um, and that's something that really needs to happen as part of a broader move toward the scientific socialism where people are able to realise the limitations of the political system and embrace science as a, as a mode of decision-making within that system because it creates the situation where things are able to get away. And, you know, the transparency... the And it is challenging for these paternalistic Asian governments because transparency is something that is a challenge um, because these governments rely on output legitimacy more than input legitimacy, i.e. legitimacy from delivering effective public services more so than legitimacy from having free and fair elections. Um, And governments will be tested in these, these situations by... And any mismanagement, it really carries political cost to the legitimacy and competency of the people in question. Um, and this has quite broad significance in Chinese civilization where rulers really received divine authority. They have what is was known as the mandate from heaven. So disasters such as outbreaks or earthquakes are quite significant in, in culture because they signify the loss of divine authority, which is disastrous for a regime like President Xi's. So this could be a partial explanation for the seeming reluctance of the Chinese government to be transparent about failures or mistakes in the way that they've gone about this in previous events.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, let's hope that that scientific rationality that you're speaking of does trump in this situation. Uh, and I think that just about wraps it up. For today, thank you very much, Matt,
1: for coming on the
0: podcast and sharing your perspective.
1: Brilliant, Alex. Thanks for having me, and thank you to everyone that um, has tuned into this podcast since it's come along. It's been uh, uh, really—it's been my pleasure to be involved in it um, today, and I know it's going to kick on and do great things in the future. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you.
0: If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. Or otherwise, you can send us an email at admin at theOWP.org. I'm Alex McIntyre. See you next time.